this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work again. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. So when's the last time you read a book on selling your company? My guess is you've never read a book on selling your company. Why bother when the only books out there read like textbooks filled with acronyms and terms you've never heard of written by people who make it their job to make themselves look and sound smarter than you? Why bother? Well, the art of selling your business tries to do exactly the opposite. It features the stories of the founders I've listened to for the podcast. I've taken their best practices, their secret hacks, and bundled them into a storytelling format so that you can take away the key lessons, the action plan, the the field guide without sifting through the boring textbook that is most books on the topic of selling your company. You can get it at builttosell.com slash selling. These days, a lot of industries are going through a roll-up. What's a roll-up? A roll-up is where usually a private equity company will come into an industry, they'll buy a platform company, and then they'll buy some additional companies around it to try to make a collection that they can go on to sell four to five or seven years down the road. They make a lot of money when it works, but it does have some downsides. Typically, you've got to put some of your proceeds at risk in the form of taking shares in the rolled up entity. Now, that may work out spectacularly well, but it can also be a risk whenever you're becoming a minority shareholder that you don't necessarily control the outcome of the company, there can be problems. My next guest, John, had a great experience selling his company into a roll-up situation. He does a great job of describing the three potential routes you can take when your industry starts to go through a roll-up. He talks in particular about the downsides of remaining independent. Think of the game of musical chairs. When the music stops, you've got to grab a chair. And if your industry's rolling up, to some extent, that's an analogy you might think about. When the music stops, you want to be able to find a chair because the companies that don't go through the roll-up and choose to remain independent often get rolled over, as John will explain in this interview. He also talks about ad backs and how they can be both a blessing and a curse to your deal. In particular, you can help improve your EBITDA by making some adjustments, but you've got to be able to make the case to the acquiring side that those adjustments are legitimate. He talks about ad backs, defines it, and how he approached it in his deal, which he'll explain. He also talks about driving a sense of urgency. Oftentimes, deals get protracted and often you lose negotiating leverage as the seller the longer the deal takes to close. And he talks about how they drove a sense of urgency in their deal. Here to tell you his entire story is John Clayton. John Clayton, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So I've got streamlined marketing as an agency, but you guys were a special kind of marketing agency. Describe what, what you do. Yeah. So, so we were, um, you know, I guess the, the high level description would be a partner marketing agency. Um, most folks who are you know, familiar with digital, that, that usually uh, refines itself down to affiliate marketing. 
um, is, is really what our specialty was, but you know, we sort of changed a bit of what, what we call the industry. It's more, more so described as partnership marketing these days. Um, but, but folks that have been in digital marketing know it as affiliate. Um, and so let's say you, you identify someone who's got a big Instagram following and mm -hmm. you have a brand that wants to sell more, I don't know, chocolate bars to teenagers. You would say, great, this guy's got uh, a ton of followers on whatever, TikTok, Instagram, and then you would do some sort of tie up with them? Like how did it yeah, work? Yeah, yeah. So, so, so the, you, you just described one type of affiliate. And so, so affiliates actually span a, like any sort of type of entity that you could think of that is digital in general could be considered an affiliate. And really what affiliate marketing means, it, it's the payment mechanism for working with that partner. So for example, that, that uh, Instagram influencer who's selling candy bars, the brand would pay that that influencer when they drive sales, so they actually give them a commission or a cut of the transaction. A, a, a more like common example, and, and most listeners would be familiar with this, would be um, if you've ever shopped online and you've looked for a coupon and you've gone to like Retail Me Not um, and you've you've browsed on their site and you found a coupon for Nike, right? If you if you click on that link on Retail Me Not, you go to Nike and you buy that pair of shoes. Retail Me Not's giving the commission from that. Um, if you are reading articles on Buzzfeed or Business Insider that are talking about specific brands and they have links in those articles that are telling you to go buy this product, oftentimes those are affiliate deals. Um, we work with podcasters, we work with bloggers and mommy bloggers and, you know, it, it, any sort of, you know, entity, again, could really be an affiliate. Um, it, it's just that the way that you pay them is generally compensated on a percentage of the sale or commission or maybe, you know, paying them for driving a lead or something like that. Got it. How did you make money? Like, what was your business model as a, a marketing agency? So we were paid by the brand. So we were um, we were effectively the agency of record. Um, so brands would hire us, and we would charge uh, both a retainer um, for for our services, and then we would charge performance on top of that retainer. So um, usually percentages of revenue or percentages of incremental revenue for growing the business. Um, we would have some sort of performance kicker. And our pitch to the brands was always, look, we, we cover our costs, which was really kind of the model we built with the retainer, right? It was, we'll make a little bit of money as a company, but it you know keeps the lights on. But really the way that we are incentivized as an agency is to hit those performance benchmarks for you. So we sort of both win in that scenario. Um, and, it, and it worked out really well in our business. Yeah, when we did actually exit, it was roughly 50-50 in terms of that sort of performance revenue, which was somewhat variable, but, but fairly consistent. Like it didn't range that wildly. Um, and the other 50% was recurring revenue retainer from our clients. How did you measure the performance kicker? So it was either, again, we, we, we had a number of different ways in which we built them, but it was always based on um, the revenue or, or spend in some cases that was directly in the, in the channel that we were managing, right? So if we, and sometimes we wrote, um, you know, contracts that were that were incrementally based. So if, if they did, let's say on average over 12 months, uh, that the their channel did $100,000 in revenue, we were going to take 2% for anything that we did above that on average, right? So if we then, if, you know, over 12 months, each month, the program was doing $200,000 in, in revenue, right? We would take that, that performance fee that we'd made from that. What were the biggest areas of dispute you had with brands around the performance kicker? Like what would cause disputes or misunderstanding? So fortunately, we didn't have many with, with brands. I mean, again, like the, the reason, and, and we can kind of go into this and our, our business grew very quickly in our industry because we came in and we, I think we, we offered a bit of a different type of service model to brands that were looking to get outsourced help 
for managing their, their partnership or affiliate program. There's a, our industry and affiliate in general has, um, has sort of a bad rap and they have a bad, it has a bad reputation for legit reasons. I would say like there's been, there's been some nefarious actors in the space. Like a lot of times you could really question whether or not what affiliates in general were doing, if it was incremental to the brand. Um, you know, there's, there's just been a lot of stuff over the years that has really cast a bad light on the industry. And like, I, honestly, I think it's kind of justified. We came in with the mindset, like, like we're, we're doing work that is going to be quality for the brand. Like we're not going to do things that are essentially defrauding them. Like some of the other agencies in the space were doing. Right. And so we, we, when we were driving performance, it was very much aligned with what the brand was looking for. So we had like their main objectives and KPIs. So for example, say it's a brand that's wanting to grow their new customer base, right? That's what their main, the main directive is. So we would build strategies around driving new customer acquisition through the affiliate channel. And most of that's done by making consumers aware of a product. So we're working with content affiliates and bloggers and influencers and really upper funnel, highly valuable um, types of partners. And so when those partners are driving revenue, it's really justifiable just in terms of like, hey, th this makes sense. Like this is really good for the brand and, and the brand's bought into it, right? We were able, able to sort of weave that story together um, and explain it really well. The other thing that we did and that I think was really helpful for our business and help us grow is we actually built um, a, an analytics suite um, that sort of lived on top of our, our service level. So we pulled in data from the affiliate platforms that were sort of tracking all this stuff. And then we also pulled in internal data from the client. So we would pull in, uh, start from, from Google Analytics or Omniture or whatever sort of internal attribution system our clients were using. And then we would actually show them like, here, here is your full attribution view. And this is what we're doing in affiliate. And this is why it's incredibly valuable for you. And this is why <laughs> we're very much justified in charging you, you know, this pretty hefty performance fee and, you know, our teams earned it. So there wasn't too much dispute um, did, in, in that regard. And the analytics suite, did you leverage something off the shelf or did you build it from scratch? So the front end was Tableau, um, just in terms of the visualization of it. The back end, um, we, we built all our APIs and we pulled it into an AWS database and, um, you know, duct taped it together so that it worked pretty effectively. Um, we had teams of analysts that were sort of embedded across our client teams that were also giving a lot of like really valuable insights to our, A, to our client teams and then to our clients. Um, and we were, we were a really heavy data organization and, um, you know, that, that definitely helped us both as we were running the business, it helped us be really efficient. And also at Exit, the fact that we had sort of a tech-enabled service business was very enticing for, for potential buyers. I want to come back to that. How big did you get this company in terms of you know, revenue or number of employees, whatever you're comfortable sharing before you decided to uh, to sell? Yeah, so we were, we were mid seven figures in revenue. Um, we were a little over 30 people. Um, and we were highly profitable. Um, so you know, our, our, our overall net EBITDA was roughly around 50%. Um, wow. so we, we were, were, and we were, <laughs> we were really profitable from, from the EBITDA perspective, I think two reasons. One, um, all the efficiencies that we talked about just in terms of how we ran our business, like we were, we were really good. We, we earned these performance fees that again, like you could get the same service that we were offering probably for a lot cheaper from other agencies. They just wouldn't be able to do the job that we were doing. Um, so there was the performance component of it. The second component is I ran the business really lean. Like we didn't really have a marketing team. We outsourced it to a friend's agency that, you know, did some really good SEO work for us. We didn't really have a finance person. We had an outsourced bookkeeper, right? We didn't have, we had one sales guy who was great, but like no outbound stuff. It was all based on internal referrals and you know, sort of word of mouth. And so, 
it was a very lean business in the sense of the sort of operational structure of what most companies might look like if they you know got a little bit bigger than that. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. What was the trigger that made you want to sell? So um, I think there's there's two sides to that. One is the personal side, and mm-hmm. then one is one is the industry side. So um, I guess we can we can go the personal route first, and then, and then maybe sure. some of the industry stuff that was sort of like leading uh, leading into that. So. You know, I, I, I started Streamline um, and, and, you know, with a couple other, you know, I, I founded it. I had a couple other partners early on, but they, uh, you know, we're, we're not, we're not there for long. Um, <laughs> they all sort of wanted to keep it a smaller thing. And, you know, one who really was my co-founder with me, she ended up getting a massive opportunity to go uh, at a startup and she couldn't turn it down. So she left and long story short, I kind of dragged the thing from zero to where it got to uh on my own and that was a hell of a experience to go through right i'm sure any, anybody listening to this like you know the the turmoils of, of going through entrepreneurship and the ups and downs of it um we were growing so fast as a company that we had to sort of reinvest every dollar that we made back into the business right so i wasn't pulling a lot of cash out um we also being a service business the cash flow challenges that we had were really tough where like we're doing work for 30 days then we build a client and they're supposed to pay us 30 days later. They really pay us 60 days after that. Some of our clients were really, really big and they just paid net 90. And that was their net you know, payment terms. And there was no negotiation around that. So you're, you're outlaying cash flow for six, seven months until you get really any dollar in the door from, from some of those brands. And so um, financially, it was while we were profitable, like I wasn't pulling a lot of money out of the business. Um, so it was, there, there, were some, there were some things that went in, into that just from an overall lifestyle and wanting to be able to, you know, support myself and things that I wanted to do. Um, and, and the other part of it, um, it was really like, it just became taxing from a, an emotional and stressful perspective of running a business. We had some, you know, falling out with uh, a couple of partners and, you know, horror stories that go into that. And I'm sure that the folks are, there's plenty of those that go around, but like, it, it was just stressful. And, and I ended up um, in 2019, I was 35. Um, I got shingles and, um, for those of you who don't know, shingles is like a, it's a really nasty rash and like a, uh, neurological, uh, uh, sort of nerve issue that happens. And like people that get it are usually in their seventies or eighties. Like it's, it's not a normal thing for a young guy to get. And I, I went to the doctor and they gave me some medicine and I was like, oh, this is really annoying, but I'm going to keep working through it. And so I, and so I did, and I just, it was, I wasn't sleeping this is, you know, I'm working 16, 18 hours a day, just hustling, just trying to get through it. And eventually like it, it, it got better, but then I started getting this, um, my throat really started hurting after the initial rash had gone away. I was like, oh, this is really weird. And I just kept working through it. And it was like, it was right, right before Q4. So a really big time of the year for us. And, and my, and my throat got like, it was really, it was so sore. I could barely drink water. We ended up having a company offsite retreat um, like that weekend, I went to it, I showed up, Katina hadn't seen me in, in like a month because I'd been at home and they were like, dude, you don't look good. Right. <laughs> and, um, it, it was there for a couple of days. And in the end of it, my like right hand, uh, woman, Haley was like, look, I'm taking you to the hospital. So I went to the hospital and what, uh, what had happened is I, the shingles had actually spread to the inside of my throat, my esophagus and, um, it ruptured. 
And the ER doctor sat me down after they like, you know, sorted me out. And it was very, very fortunate. Had I waited a little bit longer to go in there, like this could have been really bad. And the guy sat me down. He's like, look, dude, like you could have died. Like no joke. Like, you know, cause I wasn't, I wasn't really able to eat. I wasn't getting fluids in me. So like, it was a huge wake up call. I spent a few days in the hospital. Like it was really scary. And like, but he's like, look, this is stress related. Like you're working too much. Like this is what happens. Um, so that was like a personal thing. So there was some, there was some tenderizing that happened on that <laughs> side of the house where it's like, okay, tenderizing, like, that's perfect. You know, like maybe, maybe <laughs> working yourself to death is not really what you want out of it. Right. And that was in the middle of 2019. So personal stuff going on. It's like, okay, like maybe like you've done a really successful, everybody knows you, you, you built a great business. That's really something that's cool. But like, what's the next step that you really want to do, right? Do you really want to keep doing this for another five years? Like, do you want to have another health care? Like, what are you doing, right? So there was a lot of that sort of stuff spinning around in my head. Um, coincidentally, just as a side note, like as I got super sick and as I had to take a step back, the funny thing is the business actually got much better at that point because I relinquished control of all the things that I was trying to hold on to that my team was actually better at doing than I was doing. <laughs> Um, so a uh, little tidbit for, for anyone listening, don't, don't try to do everything yourself. Um, <laughs> finally learned that the hard way. Um, so the, you know, there's the personal stuff that was going on. And then, um, the other thing I think in our industry that was, it was starting to happen, uh, there was a, another agency that had done a private equity deal, uh, about three years prior to that. And they had rolled up a couple other agencies underneath them already. Um, and you know, there's not a lot of agencies in our space. I mean, really, there's, you know, 10 or so that are of, of any reasonable size in, in the U.S. Um, and I just sort of saw this trend happening in the industry. And, and usually when, you know, industries consolidate, there are, um, you know, there, there are three positions that, that are available to agency owners, right? One is you are big enough to be the company that is rolling up other companies, right? You are... <laughs> probably $5 million plus an EBITDA. You're bought by a private equity firm. They give you a bunch of money. You go out and you buy other agencies. You roll them up. Um, that's one option. The second option is that you are an attractive enough um, entity that you would be acquired by one of these holding companies and you roll up with them. You probably bet on which one you want to roll into. And there's been you know, reasons why you might go with one or the other. Um, or the th and then the third position that you get into is you get rolled over. And I did not want that to happen. And we're kind of seeing that now after we've done the deal, you know, our firm is, you know, the company that I didn't end up selling to you, we're 260 people. There's another big, um, you know, sort of private equity back group that's, you know, a couple hundred people as well. And there's all these agencies that are like 10, 15, 20 people, and they're all racing to the bottom in terms of price. Um, they're, they're big clients realize that like, this is not really the type of business that can service me um, and, and, the, and, and, and the business that I run. And so they're, they're losing bigger clients. It's, it's not a fun place to be in right now if you're in this smaller agency size. So I was a bit of ahead of the curve in terms of realizing that was going to happen. So I really started looking at things very heavily, um, you know, a couple of years really before I did the exit. And I just sort of saw the trend going in that direction and wanted Got to make it. sure I was ahead of it. 
Love it. So, so platform company for those listening, and I think this is certainly in the marketing services space, we see this, but I think the same sort of selection of options exist in other industries where there's, you know, a, a private equity group will, will, will purchase a platform company on which they want to build and make tuck in acquisitions, or you refer to it as a tuck in or, you know, an additional company and then rolled over, meaning eventually these companies get so dark, large and dominant that they're hard to compete with. And, the, the folks who left remain independent and miss the chair at the musical chairs game end up, you know, um, struggling for the, the kind of scraps. It's uh, it's something that we've, we've seen in other industries as well, for sure. But that's a really helpful framework for folks to think about. I want to go back to the personal side of things. Um, as you reflect on it, it, it what I'm hearing and, and I'm piecing together a couple of things here. So tell me if I'm wrong, John, but one of the, one of the things I heard was you were really lean and you were able to squeeze out 50% profit margins because you were lean in, in part. One salesperson, you're outsourcing the, the, the marketing and the SEO stuff. Presumably, um, you know, that there's a double-edged sword there, right? So yes, it's very profitable, but it requires all hours of the day and night to kind of yes. duct tape it all together. Did you think about Rather than sell, did you think about building out some expenses, like hiring some C-level sort of talent and sort of building out the, the the team to make it less dependent on you, and then and then do another kind of tranche of growth? Was that one of the options you considered? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think um, you know, again, the, the sort of the the met, the metrics behind again, in service businesses, the acquisitions, like there, there are certain levels, like no one will really buy you if you're under a million dollars in EBITDA, that's like, you got to get north of that for it to really make sense for the buyer and for you as a seller, right? You're, you're going to get a two to three X multiple beneath that. It's just not really worth your time to do it either. Um, but it's like a million dollars plus you're, you're an acquisition target. Again, you're one of those uh, companies that a portfolio company will buy and, and roll, roll into, into that. Um, but in order to be bigger and larger and go to that sort of next level, that that benchmark really is like four to five million, right? In EBITDA. So, in EBITDA. And so for us to get to that number, um, we would have had to invest in a, a full-fledged sales team, both, you know, I, I would need to have an external, right? But, you know, going, going out as opposed to just sort of relying on inbound leads. So full-on full sales team really sort of building on HR, um, you know, department. And, and then the third uh, thing would have been marketing, right? Um, and then realistically, I would have needed a COO to, to really like run things, right? I was a good, I'm very much the visionary, head in the clouds. I make more problems than, than you know, than fixing things when it comes to day-to-day -day operations, right? I am 100% that character. And I was never, I had some really amazing individual contributors who were like, but this woman who, who ended up running our client services team, Holly, who's absolutely exceptional and amazing, but like she probably wasn't necessarily at the caliber to be the COO, all right, and, and be that sort of really right-hand person. I was never able to find that person. So I could have gone out and done that. I could have done the, you know, hey, we're a high growth company. We had a lot of press and exposure in Seattle, which is where we were based. You know, it would have been easy enough to find maybe potentially good caliber people that were, you know, at that level and then maybe a marketing lead and a sales lead. Um, and an HR lead, but you're talking about adding four senior expensive people onto it. And so 
your EBITDA, which is north of a million now, then goes to, you know, maybe underneath that once you bring on those people, right? And then you have to grow, you know, pretty, pretty you know, exceptionally at that point to get to that four or $5 million mark. And you're talking about, um, you know, maybe four or five X in your revenue at that point to, to get to that number, right? And so I did the sort of thought process of like, do I really want to invest in this? And this is also, um, you know, like I've, bootstrap this thing and take any outside capital. Um, there were times, many times where I, I wasn't pulling a salary, right? I didn't pay myself, uh, you know, uh, at, some, at one point, I think I had like a hundred thousand dollars in credit card debt just from like, you know, putting money into the business and doing everything sure. I could, right? So it's like, did I want to go through that process again? Um, you know, and that was a really, it was a tough decision. I, I was thinking about it. I really was. I was talking to folks. I was actually looking for that sort of right-hand person. I was um, exploring it. And, and ultimately, I think what the, the deal that I ended up doing with the private equity group, and we get into the sort of specifics of that in a minute, like, mm-hmm. it gave me the immediate liquidity that is like completely life-changing and, you know, great. But it also, like I had a significant stake in, in the new venture that I'm in. So that the hope is that that will actually return much more than the initial sort of liquidity event. Great, love love to get into that now. So, so you have this incredible, uh, the scary health event, and then at the same time, the business is going through the industry is going through this sort of consolidation phase. What was next? Uh, what was the next step? I mean, did you did you hire an M and A professional? Did like did you market the business yourself? What what, what did you actually do proactively? Yeah. So I mentioned before, like we, we, it's a pretty small industry, right? That everybody knows each other. Um, and so the guys that, you know, were potential acquirers, there, there were a handful. I, I knew both direct competitors that, that had PE money in our space. And I also knew sort of larger portfolio holding companies that were PE back that, um, that didn't have an affiliate practice or a partnership practice. And it talked about wanting to explore that. So I started having conversations with a number of, of these folks and, and, and had throughout the years. Like I, I, I had, we've had, we'd had hypothetical conversations with our direct competitors about like, oh, what would it look like if we put our companies together? You know, we'd sort of like kick the tires on this throughout the years. And, and again, I always, want, the one piece of advice I might give to anyone is like, even if you are competing with people, at some point they may end up wanting to buy you or you might want to buy them. So like, keep it friendly. <laughs> like, we, <laughs> Yeah, friendly competition. <laughs> yeah. you, know, the, 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 you know, the deal we ended up doing, you know, we had taken a lot of clients from them over the years, but we always did it in like, and, and vice versa, to be fair. Um, but we, you know, we always kept it sort of cordial and respectful and we worked together. And we actually, I think all were sort of advocating for the advancement of our industry. Like, so, you know, if I'm successful, they'll be successful and vice versa. And so we always had a really like positive engagement with each other. Um, but, uh, you know, I was talking, I, I, I was exploring conversations with um, you know, some direct competitors, um, also some other sort of large and holding companies. I talked to a couple of MA advisors um, who really, you know, their, their value they were trying to sell in was, look, we can introduce you to buyers. And I, at the point uh, in, in the end of, sort of end of 2019, I was like, look, I know everybody who's going to buy me. I don't need you to do that. And so I decided to kind of go at it on my own. And um, the one group that I mentioned that had, had taken PE money a few years prior and had rolled up a couple, a couple other agencies, we got into some serious conversations towards the end of 2019. Um, you know, we, we disclosed some of our financial information. We said, look, you're big enough for us to do a deal with. You know, we really want to put this together. 
Um, they, they did give me an LOI. Um, we did a couple of turns on it, negotiated. Um, I say we, I did it. Um, and we actually got to the point where um, I was happy with the number at the, at the time and the size of the business. Um, we were, you know, had just gone through, again, some of that tenderizing uh, stuff that I had talked about. Um, and we were, you know, look, it was, it was enough money where I did the math on it. It was like, look, I'm, I'm, this is great for me. You know, this is a, a, a life-changing amount of money. I think it's a good opportunity for the employees, um, as well, right? Really, you know, this is going to become a much bigger agency. And it was a really sort of attractive pitch to me personally, because I knew the guys really well who were CEO, co-CEOs of this other private equity group. And, you know, it would have been really fun to work with them. I've been, I've been good friends with them for years. Um, I liked the PE buyer. He didn't have a lot of experience in our space, but I thought he was a good guy. Um, I liked the firm. And so it all looked really good. So we ended up negotiating, doing a few turns, um, and I signed an LOI uh, at the end of 2019. So that was LOI executed number one. <laughs> That's the first one. Okay. I have a feeling there's a number two, but let's let's just get into number one for a second. So the LOI number one, this is a, a, a private equity backed competitor. So it's a, it's a marketing agency that's got a, a kind of a blank check from a private equity company to go buy other businesses. Essentially, gotcha. that's the, that's the, the the pitch. Got it. And so, so when you say you did a couple of turns, again, I'm asking on behalf of listeners now. They're probably wondering, like, what did you negotiate? Like, what were yep. the deal points that were important to you to to work through? Yeah. So, so again, there are standard industry multiples that are not really disputable, right? If and again, it's sort of like at the million dollar threshold, you're going to get four to six x EBITDA. Um, which is right around where we were at that point, right? Um, and and you know you'll get a higher uh, multiple if you have maybe better marquee clients, if you have less concentration risk, if your client retention is really high. There's there's things that'll move it one way or the other, right? Um, if you have more recurring revenue as opposed to variable performance stuff. So we you know we we there those so there's a standard multiple, right? And and like. You know, ours ended up, you know, we knew it was going to be somewhere between four and six as we were sort of negotiating things. What really was the, the negotiating factor were things like ad backs, right? Um, and, um, you know, <laughs> we, we were growing very, very quickly as a business. Um, there were a lot of things where um, I was always, I was always cautious in terms of hiring ahead of, of new business, right? So we knew like, we knew we had exceptional close rates and we knew the certain times of the year we would have more companies coming to us looking for support, right? So everyone, uh, retailers would be signing up agencies in the middle of the summer towards the end of the summer because they want to take advantage of Q4, right? It's the big time of the year for them. So we knew we'd always get a ton of business then. So we'd start hiring people in like May, Right, it was, we knew we'd be putting them on accounts in September. We'd want to have them trained up. Um, our industry is a little difficult in that you can't really find a lot of talent that knows our space that well. So we we try to train people as much as we can, and so we'd always be building ahead, right? And so if you look at our trailing twelve months in our books, it may have been seven hundred fifty k or something like that. And there were a few other pieces I had bought out a partner that was a you know sizable add back to it. We had all these discussions about like, okay, look, well. You know, even though it says 750k, I can really clearly show you like it should be like 1.3 million, right, or whatever whatever my <laughs> argument was, right. And we ultimately ended up like 
settling on, but it's really like a million, right? In terms of like the add back adjusted sort of stuff. When we signed the LOI, that's what they sort of agreed. We're going to agree to a quarter million in add backs to it. So you get, you get a, about a million dollars needed up. Got it. So just for folks who may not be familiar with this ad back concept, it, you know, we think of a profit and loss statement as this sort of a binary linear objective thing. The accountant provides it and it's done. And it's, of course, it's, it's a little more subjective. There's a, a sort of adjusted EBITDA or adjusted financial statements is where you get into this sort of interpret interpretation of the EBITDA, yes. if you will, like the, 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 the art versus the science of it. So you're making the case, look, look, I'm getting unfairly dinged for these two employees who are all expense and no revenue, right? I'm just training them right now. So it's, there's 50 grand here and I've hired them of recruiters, blah, blah, blah. And, and that's lowering my EBITDA artificially lowering it. And you're making right. the case, say, let's, let's put that, let's take that expense off the profit and loss statement, therefore increasing our EBITDA. And they're saying, no, no, that's just regular course of business. That's, that's just, you have to hire people, right? And that was the back and forth that you were having? Yeah, that was the majority of it. And there's also, you know, cases that I was trying to make. And, and um, again, hindsight, I think having a third party make this case probably would have made it go over a lot better, but like we were growing at like 40% annually, right? I should have said, Hey, I'm, I'm at, let's say a million, right. But like, I'm going to be at 1.8 next year. Like you should be buying me for 1.5, right. Or something, something in the neighborhood of negotiating a little bit better from that perspective. But may, most of the negotiation came down to, okay, let's agree on a multiple, you know, John, you are not going to get a 10 X multiple on the EBITDA. Thank you for asking, but that's not realistic. Right. <laughs> did um, you ask? I, I, of course I did, but I knew that coming in, right. It's, you know, the, I, I think a lot of folks in our, our industry, like, it is funny. I've talked to other agency owners in the affiliate space specifically. They're like, oh, we, you know, we should get like 4X on revenue. And it's just, that's not how it works, unfortunately. Um, if you were a, a product business or a SaaS business, like maybe you could. Sure. Um, we, we all went into it. Anyone that's in the service business always kicks themselves and, and says, well, I wish I would have built a product. Or I should have been in the SaaS business because like the multiples just aren't the same. Unfortunately, I, I, you can make the case they, they should be. I mean, it's recurring revenue, right? You know, it's, it's relatively consistent, but that being said, um, I was, I was realistic with my expectations on what the multiple was going to be. So really the negotiation standpoints were the ad backs and, and we signed the LOI. We had sort of agreed. We had written them out in the LOI. This makes sense. This is what the number is right off the races. Let's go, go through due diligence. So we signed the LOI. Can uh, I just pause pause for yeah. one second, John? Did you talk about what proportion? So you're sort of in the four to six range, I'm assuming on the sort of higher end, given that you had some proprietary technology and diversified customers, et cetera. So did you agree? Uh, was that going to be all cash? Were you taking some in shares? Was there an earnout component? Like how did how how was that contemplated in the LOI? Yeah. So there was an earnout component um, with this deal. It was mostly cash. Um, there was a little bit that was rolled into it. So I think it was probably about 20% was rolled over um, into equity. Um, Just for there, folks who may not know that term rolled over means you were not taking cash for that. 20% of the proceeds were going to be in shares of the acquiring company. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. So it was, it. it was about 20%. Um, I think 60% was guaranteed in cash and the other 20% was in an earnout. So it wasn't an overly aggressive earnout. It was actually really fair. I mean, it was basically just keep your volume consistent, right? It wasn't like you have to grow 50%. It was actually, we felt, I felt really good and, and it was achievable. And in fact, um, part of the negotiation was, okay, look, if you want to give me an earnout and I crush my numbers next year, I want 
the upside on that. And so they did give us um, upside where we could have um, maybe like an extra 10% in total deal value if we would have sort of hit the upper mark um, of, of the internet, which we would have in hindsight done um, <laughs> um, uh, for having a full year. Yeah. So yeah. Interesting. So for for folks who are new to this, you kind of so that you kind of come up with a valuation somewhere in the four to six times EBITDA range in your industry service business, and then and then it comes down to okay, how's that money going to be paid? Is it all cash at closing? Is it a structured deal? In your case, it was sixty percent cash, twenty percent in in shares, and then another twenty percent that you had to kind of earn that was sort of quote at risk. How many years was the earnout? Uh, it was just one year. So it was a, it was a okay. shorter earnout, um, which I liked. Um, you know, I think long, long earnouts always get really difficult to forecast, right? You know, who knows what the business mm-hmm. is going to look like in three years? Are the guys buying you going to control you? I, I felt confident as well that they had bought a couple other agencies, and those agencies had remained independent, so they hadn't sort of smashed everything together yet. Right? Eventually, that was the plan, right? You're going to because all these groups are effectively doing the same thing. At some point, all the agencies are going to come together and combine, but they they left the groups independent. Um, the guys running them, I, I knew the owners of those other agencies that have been acquired. They told me, look, they give us advice, but they let us run things on our own. You know, I knew they weren't going to come in and, and say, well, look, you need to hire 10 more account managers. Therefore, it's going to screw up your EBITDA and then you won't hit your earn out. Like they, they had no incentive to do that. right? And, and I trusted the guys um, enough to, to be comfortable with that. Got it. So what happened? <laughs> uh, so we signed the LOI uh, towards the end of 2019. Um, and we started going through diligence. Um, and there was a Q of E uh, analysis of so quality of so earnings. Q- yeah, quality of earnings. Uh, where usually, and again, I'm doing this for our listeners sake who mm-hmm. may not have heard that Q of E. Oftentimes, an accounting firm or due diligence firm is brought in to, uh, to, to vet uh, the earnings statement to, to validate what you know you've you portrayed or you've you've said as part of the sale process. Am I getting yeah. it basically right? That is correct. And we had a lot of addbacks that we had agreed to in in the uh, LOI, right? And so the buyer, right? Um, we thought we were sort of on the same page there. Um, this third party came in and uh, nice enough guys, but you know didn't really feel like they understood the digital advertising business all that well. There were a lot of questions. It took a long time. And the end of when we got the Q of E, this was now into 2020. So we, you know, we're two months into due diligence and we dug through everything and it's an exhaustive process. And by the way, anyone that ever goes through due diligence, like it's, it is murderous. Um, it's, <laughs> it's absolutely exhausting. Um, they kind of came back with a Q of E and they said, look, you know, we, we agree with some with the ad backs, but you know, you should have actually you hired this director of operations towards the end of you know your year. And so you need to add back that guy's salary for the full part of the year, you know, for the for the TTM, right? Which is a hundred grand, right? Um, as opposed to you know where it was. And um TTM you know, stands for trailing 12 months, by the way. So yeah, tra- trailing 12 months. And and you need to add, you know, there there were all these things that they came back with in the report, and so it took our you know, let's say million dollar EBITDA down to like 800. And you know, I said, guys, look, we signed this thing. We, we talked through all this stuff. You know, this is, this is not what we agreed to. This is a sizable difference, right? And so we started having conversations. And again, like, this is where me as the guy who is 
going to have to go work for this group now. And like, and one, it's, it's difficult because we're friends. Two, I'm going to have to work for them. Like it, it, it's starting to get really contentious. It would have been great to have an intermediary that, you know, to, to help mm-hmm. out with that. Yeah. So we, we sort of go, we go through this stuff um, around the same time. Like we, we lost one of our larger clients. It just kind of came out of the blue. It's unfortunate. It happens. You know, we had new, new business in the pipeline. We hadn't necessarily sold, sold them yet. And then, and this was, this was in, I don't know, February or so. And then, you know, this, this little thing, you may be familiar with it. Uh, COVID happened and like the world starts shutting down. And so like, basically what ended up happening is we were going, we were, we were negotiating. We, we took longer than we should have done to close the deal to begin with, because again, I was trying to do it myself. They, you know, all these things. And then the pandemic happened. And so we just sort of had a huddle collectively with us. And they were like, look, man, even if we got to a point where we agreed with the ad backs, we get back to that number, the world might be imploding right now. So we need to step away from this. And I said, I totally understand. Let's go save our businesses, make sure everybody's healthy and, and all that sort of stuff. And, and we, you know, sort of walked away, right? The, the timing of the, the LOI, we had a 90 day exclusivity that was done at that point. Um, but they, they said the buyer was like, look, we want to keep in touch. Let's get through this thing. We are still very interested. Let's circle back around. Hopefully once things stabilize with the world and the economy and who knows what, and we'll look at doing a deal later on in 2020. Okay. I want to pause there because I got a couple of questions. I'm really curious how this retrading or renegotiating that's happening <laughs> after the quality of earnings is affecting your health because the shingles and the corresponding you know, tr- domino effect of that was caused by stress in the first place. Yeah. This has got to be pretty stressful. So here's the interesting thing about that. It was stressful. However, I will say that going through that experience, whatever the hell you want to call it, it actually got me into a much better headspace, right? Like I mm. actually, because I knew, and even that, you know, again, the reason they were sort of walking away from the deal was they're like, well, look, you know, all this stuff, we're not sure, you know, is your business really going to be, worth, you know, what we're paying for it. You know, there's these, these uncertainties. And I had like hundred percent rock solid confidence. Like I'm going to go out and cross the numbers that I'm telling you that I'm going to do. And if you want to buy me, I'm going to make you pay for it. Right. I just, I just knew that at that point. And it's, I, I don't know. I think I going through that and just the way that we sort of rebuilt the structure of the company and have the team running and, and everything else and the forward looking momentum with like prospects and, and what we're doing. Like I was just so confident in the company that I really was okay when we, when they started talking about pulling away from it, then the pandemic happened and then that all went to hell and I was terrified again, but I got through it actually. Um, I think going through some of those um, testing experiences will actually, like it, it makes you know that you can kind of get through anything really. Um, yeah, and, and it, I think at, at that point I was just like, I just knew it would be okay. There's nothing like crushing your numbers during the whole negotiation thing to make you fa- feel confident, right? That mm-hmm. like, okay, if you guys don't want to buy it, that's totally cool. Cause we're going to go hit, you know, we're going to, we're going to be twice the size in, in a year or two. Right. Um, to talk about, cause a lot of people, uh, may be surprised that, uh, an acquirer could renege or renegotiate on a letter of intent. So you sign this letter of intent, you give up exclusive, you, you had a no shop clause, I'm assuming where you, yep. you, you agreed to, uh, the quality of earnings uh, thing is done by an outside firm. So first of all, what was your, uh, what was your reaction when 
they started to raise the specter of renegotiating on the LOI. Like, what, what, how would you characterize the emotions that ran through your bloodstream at that point? Yeah, I mean, look, I was I was frustrated, um, and I, and I don't want to. I, I actually wouldn't classify it as saying it's retrading. I think it's like okay. a really negative term. And, and again, like I like these guys a lot, and I think they're really good people. And like to be fair, if I if I try to objectively look at what this outside accounting firm was doing and looking at QAV, like we had just just all these addbacks that were put into it. You know, we had, we had invested in our. Uh, analytics reporting suite. And like, we'd hired a developer to do a bunch of work for that. And you know, these guys are accountants and bookkeepers that don't understand digital marketing or tech really in general, the firm that we were using, like, so they, they didn't get that that was a one-off expense. They're like, well, what if you need to hire that person next year? Right. And so, you know, ultimately it, it's, a, it's a private equity buyer. They are bound by covenants to their banks and, you know, the lenders that are giving them money to go out and buy companies in general. Yeah. Right. And so like, the stuff that we were asking for, while I think as a seller is totally justifiable, you also have to put yourself in the position of like the buyer where like, you know, they're, they're just conservative. They're a value buyer. That's what this private equity group does. And like, to be fair, um, some of the stuff that, that we were asking for, like you could totally make the case that like it shouldn't have been accepted as an ad back right now. I think that I was able to get the buyer to agree to those ad backs and sign the LOI because the personal relationship that we had with them but then you have these other parties that are ultimately like the checks and balances on this stuff. And they're coming in and saying, look, do you realistically, like I can't get the bank to sign off on this or, or whatever it was. Right. I, I think, I think that's more of what it ha- what it was as opposed to the company attempting to come in and retrade um, because that's their practice. I don't think that they're that type of actor. Um, to but be I wasn't clear, happy. <laughs> yeah, no, like I, I'm sure the letter of intent that you negotiated would, did it, did it, specifically specified. yeah it specified the ad back so you sort of had it in writing you're like hey we yeah. agreed to this 60 days ago or 90 days ago yeah and then this third-party accounting firm did you ever get the feeling sometimes i've heard it described as sort of good cop bad cop sort of negotiation right mm-hmm. like the third-party accounting firm is the bad cop the darth vader says no we can't support this and then the good yeah. cop is the the private equity guy say hey man it's not me it's it's them and like That's did it. you get the sense that there was a gamesmanship going on at all or they were playing a bit of a charade i i don't i, I went again I, I don't think it was a charade i i think that they i think that that was very much the way that it what it happened right the, the bad cop mm-hmm. was the the um accounting firm and you know again like i i understand their position i think we were um you know we were, we were asking for a lot but yeah it was um you know it, it, it made the, the entire situation challenging. And again, like the one thing that, that in hindsight, like I shouldn't have been the one in the middle of this, right? You should have had banker dealing with it, that, that usually gets squashed. You know, there's an intermediary, they can go have the difficult conversations um, so that you aren't doing it with the, the people you're going to be working with. Yeah. Yeah. We've heard that a ton that having somebody be that foil allows you to they can absorb some of the negative energy. They can, they can, I mean, that, that's what they're referred. Like they're a broker at, at the end of the day, they are brokering. They're trying to bring the two parties together without yeah. it all blowing up. So where does it go from there? So the pandemic strikes, they're like, look, keep in touch, but we gotta, yeah. <laughs> we gotta figure our stuff out here. Where does yes. it go from there? So, yeah. So, so now again, the pandemic is a whole other story in general. I mean, we actually, you know, the first, first couple of months, I mean, our, you know, selling the company that, that thought process is now gone, right? It's like, okay, how do I, how do I keep the company together? And, sure. and really we sat down with 
you know, this sort of senior team, we said, look, guys, our number one goal for the next, you know, however long this lasts is to try to keep everybody's jobs. Right? Like that's the first and foremost thing, right? We probably should have been proactive and like let people go. We just didn't want to do that. And so we navigated it really well. I, you know, we had some clients ask us for concessions, others, you know, you know, asked to delay and paying us. We were fortunate to take advantage of a lot of the sort of, uh, you know, loan opportunities, um, you know, with uh, uh, PPP money and, and those sorts of things to, to keep things afloat without much of a hitch. And we were, you know, doing well enough at that point. We had a bunch of cash in the bank and we were okay. So we navigated the first few months of it and then realized like, oh, okay, this is, you know, Fortunately, not the end of the world. And our business started accelerating rapidly. Um, and, you know, I think for, for folks that uh, are unaware, um, you know, e-commerce sales accelerated um, in 2020. They accelerated, uh, you know, basically what, what they were projected to do over the next 10 years in one year, right? Just in terms of overall market share of people buying digital, like it, it advanced so quickly. And so naturally as a byproduct of that, our clients did very well. Um, we became very much in demand and we got a ton of new business and we grew like crazy and we pretty much doubled in 2020. Um, so it, it was a hell of a year for us, um, which, uh, you know, again, if thinking back in like March, um, uh, you know, I, I didn't know if that was going to happen. Um, but fortunately it ended up working out really well. Amazing. So then where does it go from there? I mean, how did yeah. you then get back on your front foot? From a selling perspective, what triggered the second? So we were still in touch with with the you know the initial buyer or potential buyers, and um, you know we we talked a lot. And actually, we I mean everybody in our industry was talking a lot during the the whole pandemic, right? Mm. Again, we're, we're we're competitive, but we're all sort of friends, and so we always you know get shared advice and things. And so we you know, we kept telling them, hey, look, things are going well, like it's really good. And they were again, they very much wanted to make the deal happen with us. I think. Um, you know, if it had been up to them, they would have done the deal the first time around and it wasn't really, um, you know, their call. But, um, you know, so they, they came back around in late Q3, early Q4. And, and they said, look, we feel like we're through the worst of you know, what was happening with, with things last year. We want to, you know, do this deal. And I said, great. The company's twice as big as it was you know, a year ago. <laughs> uh, I told you I was going to make you pay for it. So, you know, let's, let's go through this again. And by the way, uh, I've and, I, and I, I knew that I wasn't willing to put up with the back and forth negotiations and all that sort of stuff again. And I brought in uh, an investment banker, um, uh, Ron uh, from from Garrow's Group. Um, he's really well known in the space for you know working with with service firms and just knew knew things really well. He had offered to represent us the first time around. I, I told him no. I thought I had it, but ultimately this time it was like, look, this this makes sense. So I brought him on board. Um, and it, we started negotiating an LOI at that point. And, um, you know, again, we were, we were a lot bigger. Um, and so the LOI came in, uh, at, at a, at a higher multiple, um, and it was based on a, you know, much, much larger EBITDA. And there was, you know, there were still some that actually there were ad backs now because we didn't have an office anymore. So that was one that we had to kind of go through, but we were, you know, we did, we spent a few weeks kind of going back and forth on the LOI. They sent us a, a few turns of it. Um, I was very happy to have Ron as sort of the intermediary to go and negotiate and, and do that sort of stuff. And we were, we're getting it to a point where like we were, I was again, really happy with it. Um, and, but the interesting thing happened during the negotiation of, of TLY, um, 
you know, we, we were just getting new business inbound left and right. You know, the, the, the prospects were looking really good. And we signed a deal with um, uh, Apple. Um, you know, it was like hmm. a you know, huge, huge, huge deal, right? So new client, massively successful. And, and I'm starting to think in the back of my head, like, am I making the right choice? Like, we're growing so fast. Are these the right guys to be doing it with? The other thing that I was thinking in terms of um, this deal, it, it did. It was the same sort of structure. There was an earnout. There was a bunch more cash up front, and there was also an equity component. But they were, you know, four years into their holding life cycle with this private equity group, and I knew that they were going to be selling, you know, in a year or two, and I was only going to get a certain amount of increase in that equity that I rolled into the company. Um, and so for, for people listening to this, like when you, when you, again, you sell into a private equity group, if you're the, if you're on the tail end of that cycle, right. And most private equity groups hold companies for three to seven years, let's say somewhere in that range. But if you're on the tail end of that, you're, you're selling yourself. And let's say you roll a couple million dollars into that, that company, you might be selling into it and, and only getting a, you know, percentage point or two, because that collective group is worth hundred million dollars. That's they're valuing themselves at a large number and they might sell for 120. And so you might get a 20% return on the money that you keep in it, as opposed to if you do it at the sort of like the start of that private equity cycle, you may get five, six X return on your money, right? So it was one of the things that I was weighing in my mind. So long story short, we had an LOI, it was a good shape. And I was just, I just, something was just not sitting Great with me. It was a little myth to be fair about the guys backing out on it last time. And I'm like, to be clear, it's the same guys, right? Same guys, yeah. same group. Same guy. Okay. Same group. Yeah. And, you know, I just, I was, it was just kind of, you know, thinking about it and chewing on it. And it was, but I was, I was feeling pretty good. I was like, and I was, you know, I was talking to friends and family and you know, everybody's like, sign the damn deal, sign it. What are you doing? Sign this is, do it. Right. And um, just it happened just randomly. I was, um, I was chatting with uh, the president, uh, Matt Wool of, of Acceleration Partners, um, who is a competitor in our space and we're good friends. And we were talking about um, something completely unrelated. And I and and, you know, they were AP was a bigger than us. They were you know, 200 or so people. Uh, we knew they were going to eventually going to do, do a deal. We had talked to, you know, this is one of the groups we had hypothetically talked about putting our businesses together at some point. And I just randomly asked Matt. So I was like, hey, so are you guys selling anytime soon? And I wasn't necessarily leading with anything like that. I was just more shooting the shit with him. And he's like, you know what? Um, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're thinking about something. What, what's, why, what's going on with you? And, and, and I was a little, uh, I didn't come right out and say it, but I'm sure that I, he, he got the, the, the sort of can that like I was maybe getting close to doing something. He said, hold on a second. Let me call, let me call Bob. And so Bob Glazer, the, the founder of AP, calls me two minutes later. And, and he's like, you know, there, there's something that we're really close on that I, I, I need to make a couple of phone calls. But like, if you're looking at doing something, just don't sign anything for like an hour. <laughs> I was like, okay, this is interesting. Like, what's, what's going on here? So 30 minutes after that, um, I got on a call with Bob, uh, Matt, and uh, Bennett from Mountain Gate Capital. And so Mountain Gate Capital is a private equity group. Um, who I had actually met a few years prior. Um, they were the backer of another company that we were actually really close with and, and sort of partnered with and friendly with, which was called Tenuity. Um, I, I, they took them from 150 people to 700 before ultimately selling them. 
Um, and Mountain Gate is incredibly well-known, respected in the service businesses as being like the Harvard of private equity firms for that group. So mm-hmm. got on the call with Bennett, I'm like, and we knew each other relatively, you know, roughly. And, the, and Bennett said um, from Mountain Gate, he said, look, we're about to do this deal with Acceleration Partners. It's not announced yet. It's going to happen in a couple of weeks. Um, but while we work through that, we would love to make an offer for your firm. So they, and that was on a Friday. So on Sunday, uh, they worked all weekend. We shared, we shared our information with them um, and they presented an LOI to us on like Sunday night. Um, and they, they you know, went through the whole process. I mean, they, they pretty much uh, worked nonstop and got us something. And um, the LOI was very aggressive. Uh, it was better than you know, what we had previously been looking at. Um, there was no earnout, uh, no earnout. Uh, multiples higher. Um, you know, we had you know, no questions about any of the addbacks or anything like that. And then there was an opportunity to roll a larger portion of equity into the um, the sort of new company, which was very attractive um, for for me. Um, how, that's a, that's an interesting way of putting it. So, an opportunity to roll equity was that a requirement to roll equity, or I'm assuming you were being asked to take a portion of the deal in shares in the consolidated company? So, um, you know, I, I did not uh, negotiate on it because I knew this was sort of like, it, it was the smart thing to do. I think if we would have pushed back and said, no, I just want all cash, um, it probably would have done it, but it might've been at a lower number. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think it's, it's been generally Mountain Gate and their philosophy is they buy founder led companies and they generally suggests, uh, highly suggests that they roll a, a sizable portion of the proceeds of the sale into the sort of new platform company. And so roughly what proportion of the deal were you asked to roll? I rolled 30%. 30%. Okay. Yeah. Got it. And so the other 70% was cash yep. by closing no earnout. Cash closing so, no earnout. Yeah. Got it. Got it. What happened to the, the other guys? Did, did they come back and counter again? We, we did not go through that. It was, it wasn't something where we wanted to like, um, you know, have them bid off each other and try to drive the price up. I mean, it was, you know, again, there are industry standards that, you know, maybe you get a little bit higher. We, we didn't, we didn't feel like going through that process and ultimately like, I I felt a little bit bad about it. I wasn't trying to like lead these guys on and and find another buyer. It just literally happened to happen at the last second. I mean, really like Mountain Gate, they, they took a huge gamble in even putting the LOI in front of us because and we did as well with them because they hadn't finalized their deal with Acceleration Partners yet. Um, so we didn't, we didn't go back and negotiate. I think we'd already kind of gotten the initial first buyer up to really their maximum threshold of where they, they were going to be comfortable going um, and didn't want to turn this into a bidding war. I think the numbers were you know, attractive enough where, hey, maybe if we would have done it, we might've gotten an extra five or 10%, but like, is it worth it at that point for the relationship going forward? I, I, I didn't think it was. Um, so, so we didn't, we didn't do that. We said, we told the initial group, we said, look, this other buyer came in the last second, really sorry. It wasn't anything personal. We're going to go with them. What was your reaction? Um, you know, I, I think they were disappointed, but, um, you know, <laughs> it's a, they, I think that, um, you know, at the end of the day, they had a chance to buy us first time around. <laughs> Right. So, Man, like, I'm sure yeah. they're kicking themselves now. Like, the damn accountants, how can we bring them in for this goofy? You know, <laughs> they, they, and look, they, they ended up they ended up doing just fine. I think they just did their first their exit of that that PE round, and they did great out of it. So, 
but um, you know, we were, we, yeah, I think, I think they were obviously disappointed and they thought we were going to get a deal done and it didn't happen. And that's, that's okay. Um, so we ended up going with the, with new buyer with, with uh, Mountain Gate and Acceleration Partners. Got it. Got it. That's super helpful. And what was Ron's, your, your M&A professional, what was Ron's role in negotiating with Bennett and the and Mountain Gate guys? So anything money related, I said, talk to Ron. <laughs> you want to talk about multiples, you want to talk about uh, you know, other than questions about the, you know, the PL or things like that, right? Any negotiation on that, Ron is the guy that you're going to talk to, right? And he will go to bat. And so the interesting, we actually had something come up with Mountain Gate. I did say there was no earnout, which is true. However, there was a holdback on equity based on the successful re-signing of a marquee client of ours. So we had one client who was roughly 20% of our revenue. We've been working with them for a number of years. I saw zero risk in losing them, but it was big enough that Mountain Gate wanted to hold back some of the equity that we were sort of rolling over. And um, and so I let Ron negotiate this. Um, and then the deal that Ron worked out is we said, okay, sure, we'll hold that back. But once I get that deal signed, you know, if I'm risking something and doing this, you need to risk something as well. So when we get that deal signed, you give me more than what we had sort of what you're holding back. Um, and so that, that we did get the client signed and, and uh, Ron took care of all that stuff. Oh, cool. So you got a little, a little, yeah, well, a lot more. Yeah. Yeah. So that was nice. Um, so anything financially related, um, yeah, left it up to Ron, you know, really their work from, you know, an investment bank, I'm an firm, um, there's so much documentation that goes into doing these deals, right? You have to look at all the contracts for all your clients. You have to look at employment contracts. You have to look at insurance. You got to organize all this sort of stuff. I basically just said, Ron, here's access to all of our online files. It's kind of organized. Go dig through it. (laughs) Let me know what you don't find. And and then we'll provide it for you. And, and, you know, then you just handle all that stuff working with uh, you know, the, 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 the acquirer um, and the people that they're bringing in to do the deal. And so they were just really the middleman in, in organizing everything. And it was a ton of work. And we also, by the way, we closed uh, 45 days after signing the LOI and we had to get it done before the end of the year, right? That was our sort of timeline. We want it done in 2020, makes it cleaner for tax purposes. We were also concerned maybe potential capital gains tax changes in 2021. So we wanted it to happen in in 2020. And I think we signed the deal on November 15th. So we were racing to finish before the end of the year. It's also a hectic time of the year. There's the holidays and everything else. So like having Ron and his team involved was like, it's the only reason why we got the deal done. It's because we had that, that party involved. In retrospect, was that something that Ron used to tighten the due diligence process. Here's what I've heard. Oftentimes due diligence gets dragged on and the the longer it gets dragged on, the more it favors the buyer, right? The buyer starts to renegotiate, finds things and, 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 and the seller starts to get desperate and gives up concessions that they're not, they wouldn't have if, if, if the due diligence period was shorter. Do you think in retrospect, Ron, picked the calendar year 31st and drove to that knowing that that was a hard line in the sand or, or was that just a happy coincidence or, or was Bennett trying to close by the end of the calendar year? Like who was driving that? Yeah. So actually we, we both had that objective, right? So Mountgate mm-hmm. wanted to close before the end of the year. We want to close before the end of the year. So we were both aligned from that perspective. I do think working under a shorter time frame allowed us to, 
Yeah, it probably worked out in the seller's favor. Um, you know, we we did have ad backs into the business. They, they weren't nearly as large as maybe it was what we had tried to do the first time around. Um, but you know, like someone, if they really wanted to, to dig into it, they could ask deeper questions. We could have really had to go back and forth and explain things. And who knows, right? We may have agreed on concessions and gotten a lower number because of that. There simply wasn't time, right? <laughs> you had to sign. You know, you had you had to get the the contracts done. You had to get the tax, you know, reviews done. Sure. Everything else that goes into it, right? There just was not enough time to really dig into too much of that stuff. What were, where were you when the check cleared your bank account when the wire came in? Um, I, yeah, I was at home, which is where I was for the entire time doing this. It's, it's funny. We actually, um, I finally met Bennett and the guys at Mountain Bennett specifically in person. Um, about a month ago at, our, at the first conference that we'd gone to as a company. And he came out there because he was speaking on the panel. Um, you know, it, it was, he laughed about it. He's like, look, this is the first deal we've ever done. We've never met in person, right? This is always usually a face-to-face sort of thing. And sure. so doing it virtually, it was just kind of wild. But yeah, I was at home um, where, where I had been the, for the past 12 months, pretty much, right? I hadn't really left much. Um, and that was, uh, that, was a, that was a crazy uh, feeling, actually, though, to go through that. That was fun. Describe for me the emotional uh, kind of. I, w- I wanted to use avoid the word roller coaster because it's leading the witness. But but in any event, but describe the emotions you went through from refreshing your your bank account and and seeing the money hit. So you refresh your browser; it's there. Just walk me through the emotions that you experienced over the the days that followed. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, it, it felt very surreal for a, a long period of time, right? It doesn't, it doesn't feel real. And look, I'm, I'm almost a year out of having a deal done at this point, right? So it's still relatively fresh. Um, and I think it's finally settling in, like that I actually did that. <laughs> like it's in, in the moment because you're there's just so much um, pressure and, and energy that's put into just closing the thing. Like when you when it's finally done, like. I actually didn't feel this sort of like moment of elation and like, oh, let's go celebrate. It was just like, I oh, thank God I can sleep now, right? <laughs> it was more of what it, what it felt like to me. I, I think, um, you know, the reality of things sort of, you know, is set in a, a few months later where it's like, okay, cool. Like, you know, mom, dad, like, yeah, I know you've been you know, wanting to retire. Like, well, you can now, right? Let's go get you that house. And, you know, uh, you know, working with financial advisor and they're like, yep, you're set. Like, you don't, you know, if you want to quit today, you don't have to work ever again, right? The, the, the sort of realities, the financial implications um, start to, you know, reveal themselves down the road, I think a little bit more. But in, in the moment, honestly, man, it's just like, I was just happy that it was done. And I didn't have to talk to lawyers and and get on the phone with you know 13 people every every day for for a while um so it was it was a relief as much as anything else and i think the joy sort of came afterwards but it just takes a little bit of time to to just feel it tell me about the experience of talking to your parents about helping them retire yeah i i mean i think it's um it's interesting right like you know my folks are, are successful in their own right but you know my dad is still He's a psychologist and he was still working, you know, doing a few clients. He was partially retired, but, you know, just, I think that, um, you know, they've never been in a position where they, you know, they, they could not work. Right. (laughs) And, uh, and, and I think to finally be able to, 
to, you know, to, for them to have a son that could do that. It was sort of a foreign concept to them, but obviously they're very proud and happy about it. And, you know, ultimately that's, that was part of the, the decision in terms of like what I was looking for out of an exit, right? I, I, I knew that I could keep running this thing and I could keep growing it and, um, and doing that. But I was ultimately like, I was losing time with my, my family, you know, my parents, and I wanted to spend more time with them. And, um, you know, I knew that at a certain number mark, right. I'd be able to do that, right. And help them. And, uh, you know, my, my mom's going to be I'm moving up to Washington, retire up here. So I'm, you know, hoping to help buy her house up here when she, when she does that. And, you know, all those sorts of things that, that went into it. And I think, um, that that's the really the rewarding thing. Like for myself, it's cool. Like it's great to have money and, you know, I, I'm always going to work. I, I'm not the type of, I'm not going to go sit on the beach, right. I, I don't want to do that. But I think to be able to, to just sort of take care of the people that you love and care about, like that's the really rewarding thing for me. I bet. I bet. Well, it's an amazing story. And I'm, I'm really grateful that you're willing to share it with, with us. Um, if people wanted to reach out and, 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 connect with you what's the best way to do that is there a website you want to point people to or, LinkedIn um, or? yeah yeah linkedin's linkedin's the best one I, I try to actually be uh subtle on social media these days but um linkedin if anyone wants to chat with me and um you know anyone interested in, in the you know, affiliate partner marketing industry um you know i, I am uh, part of uh, acceleration partners now I, I run sort of strategy and, and bigger picture things for them and so uh you can find us at accelerationpartners.com um, if anybody wants to chat about, about that uh, industry. Accelerationpartners.com. On LinkedIn, are you Jonathan Clayton or John Clayton? Which uh, I think either one will probably pull it up, but I think, it's, okay. I think it is but actually John Clayton. Officially, it's Jonathan. So it's, I think it's Jonathan, yeah. Yeah, I think that's best. We'll, we'll put all those links in the show notes at builttocell.com. John, this was great. Thanks for doing it. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Hey, if you like today's episode, you're going to love my new book, The Art of Selling Your Business. The book was inspired by the cohort of my guests over the years who have been able to negotiate an exit far better than the benchmark in their industry, sometimes two or three times more than I would have expected. I was curious to understand the tactics and strategies of these entrepreneurs and what they do differently from average performers. The result is a playbook for punching above your weight when it comes to selling your business. To learn more, go to builttosell.com slash selling, where we put together a collection of gifts for listeners who order the book. Just go to builttosell.com slash selling. Built to Sell Radio is produced by Haley Parkhill. Our audio and video engineer is Dennis Labataglia. If you like what you've just heard, subscribe to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Just go to builttosell.com. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.